Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Financial Statements 101, Your Business's Report Card. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Jandria Blumenhurst. Jandria serves as a financial and accounting consultant for AGH's Outsourcing Services Group. She helps clients with a broad range of accounting and consulting services, including monthly financial closeout, assistance during peak workloads or special projects, training new accounting personnel, internal control reviews, and assistance with departmentalizing financials and cost allocations. Prior to joining AGH, she worked in private industry positions where she was responsible for monthly financial statements, payroll, management reports, development of internal control procedures, and monthly closing procedures. You may know your customers, your operations, and your market inside out, but where many struggle is how to monitor and evaluate the business's finances. That's the goal of the financial statement. It's a report card for your business's financial health. This webinar will cover how to read and interpret the basic financial statements, including a balance sheet, income statement, and statement of cash flows. And in addition, we'll examine how you can create key performance indicators to simplify your analysis. So um, here are the learning objectives that we have for the webinar um, today. Uh, first, we're going to understand uh, what the different users of your financial statements may want to know and who those users are. And then Second, we're going to understand the information in the different financial statements. And then we're going to go through some ratio analysis, some key performance indicators, and look at a few dashboards so you can see what you can do with those financial statements once you get those numbers. So let's start with who the users of the financial statements are and what they might be looking for. So um, as a business owner, it's they will want to know how their business is doing. They may be interested in how profitable the company is, maybe how much they're going to have to pay in taxes. Um, is the company cash flowing? That would be important. Um, am I going to need to watch for a bonus? Maybe I've said if we hit certain indicators that we'll pay a bonus out. I also may have budgets or I may be interested in certain product lines or locations as a business owner. So there's a lot of different things that they're looking for there. The next thing would be uh, managers and what they look for. They're going to look for things that are much more detailed, um, things like profitability for their location or their product line. They also may be interested in what the bonus would be for themselves or for their group. And they also may be um, compared to budget that may be part of their performance evaluation at the end of the year. Next, we have bankers. Many business owners are required to send their financial statements into bankers monthly, quarterly, maybe yearly, depending on what uh, kind of debt you have and, and what the bank has. And the banker is going to look at things a little bit differently. They also want to know if you're profitable, but they also want to look and see what kind of credit risk you might be. What other loans may you have on the books that they um, need to be aware of? Um, do you have cash flow? They're going to want their loan paid, so they're looking for that. They're also going to look at a ratio of debt to equity that we'll get to a little bit later in the webinar. And it's going to tell them uh, how leveraged your business is. So theirs looks slightly different. Some companies have to send their financial statements into a bonding agent or an insurance agent. I see this a lot in the construction industry. And so what they're going to look at is insurability. Um, do you have cash flow to pay for your bond? Um, are you, you know, do you have uh, revenue or asset balances that are compatible with what they require? 
Um, also, they may require some supplemental schedules, such as contract schedules, to see what kind of jobs and how large they are, so they know exactly what they're bonding. Also, many times, uh, companies will be asked by their vendors to send them financial statements. And these vendors are, are looking to establish a credit risk. You know, again, do you have the cash flow to pay their bill? If not, they may put you on tighter terms, such as payment on delivery, or um, COD or cash only, or if it looks like that you have good financial statements and you're able to pay your bills, they may be able to um, provide you credit and you can pay per term such as in 30 days. Uh, tax preparers, so we all have to pay those taxes and uh, tax preparers have to have certain information in order to file those tax returns. They need to know what your revenues are, what you purchased for equipment during the year, how much you paid in meals and entertainment, perhaps what the salaries are of the owners. Uh, there's also sales tax uh, that many times has to be remitted to the state, and therefore uh, you would need to have the information, the preparer would need the information on what sales are by different locations in order to remit the proper amount of sales tax. So in the event that you get audited, um, taxing authorities would need to be able to see your financial statements. And they're going to, that's going to help them determine if you have paid the proper amount in taxes. This could be true on both a corporate level, such as your federal return, or if you have a sales tax audit, they are going to look at your billings and your expenses and pull some invoices and look at that. So they are going to look at your financial statements. So the next thing I'd like to cover before we get to the actual financial statements is the financial reporting framework. And what this means is there are different methods to doing accounting that are all correct but are very different. And I think of this as playing soccer. Rules for American soccer are slightly different than rules for European soccer, which might be different than rules that South American soccer is. It's all still the same game, but the rules are slightly different, and that's kind of what this is. So. We'll go through these and I'll show you what I mean. So a cash basis financial statement would pretty much look like a checkbook. If you make a deposit, you have revenue. So if somebody pays you for your product or service, you have revenue. If you write a check or you wire money out, you have an expense. It's very straightforward, very easy. As long as you balance your checkbook, you pretty much can do a set of financial statements. Second thing would be modified cash basis. And what this is, it's just like cash basis, but it's usually modified for things like fixed assets and depreciation. So although depreciation is not cash, many times uh, the financial statements are modified for that. And that is very much like tax basis. And what tax basis means is whatever method you use on your tax return. So this may be dictated by the, dictated by the type of company you are, it may be how large you are, maybe your industry. Tax basis can either be a cash or accrual. It depends on what's required. And then finally, we have generally accepted accounting principles, or GAAP. And what this means, it's full accrual. It means that transactions are going to be recorded at the moment the transaction occurs, regardless of when the cash happens. So for example, if I'm selling t-shirts, and somebody walks in and takes you know, a box of t-shirts for their baseball team, and I give them an invoice to pay for in 30 days, that sale occurred, I did the t-shirts, and the person came and picked them up, so the transaction is complete as far as the sale goes, it's just that the cash hasn't traded hands yet. 
And so in that case, you would record the sale, but you would also record accounts receivable. The same would be true on the expense side. There would be many things that you would record as they happen and then pay later. So that's where your accounts receivable and accounts payable come into play. So that's what full accrual is. So now we'll get into the actual financial statements. There are different financial statements, and each one plays a different role because they all give some different information. So here are the basic financial statements, and we'll talk about these as we go through the webinar. So we've got your balance sheet, your income statement, your statement of changes in equity, cash flows, footnotes, and supplementary information. So a balance sheet, this is a point-in-time report. This means as of a certain day, what does my business look like? And that means it can change dramatically. You buy a building tomorrow, your balance sheet look, would look very different because you've got different things to record on it. Also, I want you to keep in mind that this um, balance sheet generally uses historical values for your large assets like buildings. If you buy a building today for $100,000, in 20 years, it's still going to show $100,000 on your balance sheet. You don't update the value of that building with appreciation. And therefore, your building may be worth more than your balance sheet shows, but you don't change it because that would be a different type of accounting that you would use uh, maybe if somebody's looking to buy your business or buy the building. So that would not be part of the full accrual accounting. So I've got here an example of the balance sheet for Jandrius Jumpsuits, which is a made-up company that I have. And you can see I've got assets on the left, and I've got liabilities and stockholders on the right. And if you look at the totals for each one of those, you can see that they balance, and that's the whole idea of a balance sheet. On the left side are the things that you own, either tangible or intangible items that you have a right to. The things on the right are how you have obtained those, either through credit, through loans, or, or your vendors, or through the equity that you've put into the company over time or direct cash. A couple things that I would like to point out, um, you can see we have a subtotal for current assets. And what that means is items in that total are items that will turn into cash in the next 12 months. So in the next year, I would expect the things like cash, receivables, and inventory to turn into cash. Um, that would be the plan. You can also see on the right, we have a total for current liabilities. And those are things that are due in the next 12 months. So liabilities are things you owe. And so these would be things that you would have to pay in the next 12 months. So you've got some loans. You've got some trade payables. You've got some um, accrued wages, let's say vacation. And all of that's going to get paid out in the next 12 months. And those are important because those um, are used in a lot of the ratios that we use later. Then you've got things below current assets and current liabilities that are long-term in nature that you do not plan to turn into cash into, in the next 12 months. So for example, on the assets, we've got machinery and equipment and transportation equipment or vehicles. These are things that you are going to use every day, every month to produce your products. So in this case, it would be the machines that I use to make my jumpsuits, maybe cutting the material or sewing them, or maybe some computers that I use to do the accounting. There are things you're going to buy and hold for a longer period of time. Also, the things at the bottom would be that way also under long-term assets. Like cash surrender value, I'd, I'd really hope that uh, if that's on me that you don't need it in the next 12 months. Um, then on the right, again, we have long-term liabilities. And those are the portions of the debt that is not due in the next 12 months. Those are things that are due 
farther out. And then finally, the stockholders' equity section. This is the equity that you have in the business. And it's really the difference between the assets and the liabilities. Um, this does not necessarily mean it's what your business is worth. Again, that's a different kind of accounting. So if you were wanting to sell, you would not sell it for the million dollars that I've got listed here. You would want it to be a different number, perhaps more and perhaps less. So now we're going to go to the income statement. And a lot of you might call this a profit and loss or a P&L. And what this does is it tells what happens to your business over a period of time. So you will always see these as saying for the month ended, for the quarter ended, or for the year ended. And so again, let's look at an example. So here's a, an income statement for Jandria's jumpsuits. And this is for one month. This is for December. And so in this case, you can see I have sales, and those sales would mean uh, sales related to the main part of my business. So this would be me selling jumpsuits. Cost of sales are the things that go into making those jumpsuits, and some of them are very direct, and some of them are a little more indirect. My direct cost would be my material, my thread, my buttons, my zippers, um, labor, uh, would go on there, um, you know, if it takes an hour to make a jumpsuit and that person makes, you know, $15 an hour, then that would go into the cost of that jumpsuit. But then there's all those other things that come into play that you couldn't do without when you're making jumpsuits, like the electricity to run the machines and keep the lights on, um, the taxes that go with those employee wages that I just mentioned. So there's some things there that have to be allocated, and those are direct overhead items. And so there is more in there than just the direct costs. There's some indirect costs as well. And then you see we have a gross profit. Again, this is a number that's going to come up later, but for each jumpsuit I sell, you see you can, um, I sell, you can see that I, uh, my gross profit is about 20%. And then I have general selling and administrative expenses. And these are all those other expenses that don't go directly into the cost of the jumpsuits, but also are also very important. Like Perhaps um, your accountant. You know that you got to have that uh, person. You need your bills paid. You need to have payroll done. That would be important. Maybe some of the benefits in there. Maybe the owner's salary goes in there. Um, your accounting fees, your legal fees, and things that just have to be paid and and used, but don't really go into the actual cost of the product that you make. And then we have income from operations. And so here. Uh, I've got about 8.6% is what it says I'm making on my operations, the main part of my business. And then I've got other income, and that can really be almost anything. That could be I sold a piece of equipment and I got some money for it. Um, it could be that I'm uh, not using all of my building and maybe I rent out a corner of it for some more office space to, to my friend. Um, I could be selling uh, scrap material at a flea market. Anything like that could go into other income. It's really just the catch-all for everything else. And then um, I've got a subtotal, but then you see I have interest expense. And that's, again, another big number that we use in a lot of these ratios. So it's usually broken out separately. And then finally, we've got net income. And you can see there that I've got about a 14% profit. And these items are all based on the percentage of sales like I've got at the top. So again, we'll, we'll kind of revisit those in a little bit. And so my next screen, what I've done is this is the year-to-date uh, income statement, and it's the same idea, it's just bigger numbers because I've got 12 months in there. 
So next we'll look at the statement of changes in equity, and this has several different names. Sometimes it's called statement of retained earnings, statement of stockholders' equity, statement of members' equity. Some of it depends on your entity type. So it kind of pulls all the financial statements together. So what I've got here is it shows that uh, what my equity was at the beginning of the year or the end of last year. So at the end of 2013, um, you can see that in total my equity was $532,539. During 2014, I had net income of 918656 and that will tie to my income statement. But then there were distributions taken by the owner. And these distributions um, might be needed to pay taxes. They might be uh, a way the owner takes extra money out of the business, but it doesn't go on his W-2, and that's all fine. That's all allowable by tax law. So what you can see then at the bottom is um, my balance at the end of the year is just over a million dollars. So in this case, it's pretty good because I've only needed about half of the money pulled out in order to uh, pay my taxes and other things. And so my equity has gone up quite a bit, right at $500,000 for the year. So statement of cash flows is my favorite income, or my favorite financial statement. And the reason I like this is I'm always getting the question, if I have net income and I have to pay my taxes, why don't I have any cash? Uh, most common question I probably get. And that's because unless you use the cash basis financial statements, there's activity that happens in your business that doesn't affect your cash. Remember, that's why we have the accrual basis. So we'll talk about that here. So here's an example. So we always start with net income, and there's that $918,000 again. So next thing we're going to do is we're going to add back depreciation and amortization. So depreciation is really an expense taken to lower the value of your equipment on your books. So think of it as kind of wear and tear. Well, it's all on paper. It's just an entry made in the books, but there's no cash. You don't pay cash to your machine. So we, we are going to add that back to your income. The next thing is uh, you see accounts receivable and you see a negative there. Well, what happens here is you're making sales and your business is growing and this is great. But if you're providing those terms like we talked about at the beginning and you're allowing people to wait 30 days to pay you, you're actually financing them for 30 days. And so it is, you're making the sale, but you haven't received the cash yet. So it is not cash in your pocket and we subtract it. Inventory is the same way. My inventory is higher at the end of this year than it was last year, and I've had to pay for that inventory, but I haven't used it up yet. And so it was a cash outflow, and I haven't received the benefit from the cash inflow yet. And that's the idea with all of the items in that first section, is money I've received or money I haven't received based on changes in account balances. The next section, where it says cash flows from investing activities, this shows that I purchased some equipment. I purchased quite a bit of equipment during this year, $573,000 worth. So I've paid that out, um, but it doesn't go onto my income statement, so it's not lowering my income, but I still had to pay cash for that. So in this case, I had money going out um, of, of my checkbook. But if we look down on the next section, which are cash flows from financing activities, I, uh, my revolver or my line of credit went up by a couple hundred thousand dollars, and I got some long-term debt for $405,000. Well, you can see there, that's $610,000 in total, and what that did is it allowed me to buy that equipment and finance some of those accounts receivable in inventory. 
so that uh, that's where I've gotten some cash inflows to help with that. Then you can see I've paid down some debt there, and also you once again see those distributions because that is money that went out the door, but it did not affect my income statement. So my cash actually went down $132,654, even though I made nine, over $900,000. So my cash is way down, even though my income is a nice number. That's because income is not the same thing as cash. So footnotes are presented usually when a, a CPA firm does your financial statements. So I don't see these usually on internal financial statements. Because what the footnotes do is they provide additional financial information uh, regarding the financial statements. Um, so it's going to have accounting policies, um, maybe what your uh, uh, accounts receivable policy is for writing off bad debt. Um, also what your policy is for how you value your inventory. Some of the things that may be important um, to somebody reading the financial statements where you know that, but they would not know that. And then the other thing is it gives details on certain items in the financial statement. So we saw where it showed how much I owed on those loans, but you don't know anything about what interest rate there is, what kind of monthly payments they are, are they collateralized, are they personally guaranteed. So those things would go in there. Um, if you have an auditor or, or review, you are required to have footnotes presented, but if you have a compilation, they can but don't have to. So you might see them either way. So here's just a couple of quick example of footnote of a footnote. So like I said, inventories. In this case, it's saying that cost is determined by first in, first out. That's going to be very different if it was last in, first out. And it also may include a reserve for bad inventory or slow moving inventory. And then a line of credit footnote, and it describes how much is allowed to be borrowed, how the interest rate is determined, and when the revolver is due and that its collateral is uh, pretty much everything that the company owns and the owner of the company has guaranteed it. So uh, just, like I said, a little more detail than you get than just the numbers. So then supplementary information is really anything else that may be presented with the financial statements that's not the things that we just described. And this can be any number of things. Most of the time what I see is either budget to actual reports, departmental or location schedules or just detailed schedules of maybe cost of sales or accrued expenses. Um, but really any of these things that I've listed here, I've seen them all. Um, so it's really just anything else that you think either is necessary or would provide better information. Or sometimes this may be required by like your bank or your bonding company. They may want to see a list of all the jobs that you have going on at the end of the year. So now this is uh, where I, I find it gets a lot more interesting because now that we've talked about the financial statements and what they are and, and some of the numbers and where they come from, um, we're going to talk about ratios. And what ratios allow you to do is show relationships between accounts. This can be a great way to see how healthy a business is and it then later uh, allows us to compare it to businesses of different sizes and, uh, or the same size. But the first thing I want to do is I want to do a definition of working capital. And you can see here it's very easy, but many times people don't understand what this is. And what we have is current assets minus current liabilities. If you remember back on our balance sheet, I made a point of showing you that current assets and current liabilities were subtotaled and that they were important. And you're going to see those a lot here in the next few slides. 
So what this does is it gives you a number that allows you to work with. Um, so current assets, things that will be cash in the next year, current liabilities, things you have to pay in the next year, uh, that, that gives you a number. So in this case, my working capital is the $3 million minus the $1.5 million, which is another $1.5 million. So um, when we look at some ratios in a little bit, you're going to see this is right where you should be. Um, so we're, we're good here. But I wanted you to know that because some of, some of the ratios use this number. So we're going to start with financial condition ratios. And these are pretty straightforward, um, but these definitely um, are used quite a bit. And these are very common. So we'll get into each one of those back here. So I've used the numbers off of the Jandrius jumpsuits at the end of the year to compare these two. Once again, under current ratio, you can see we are taking the current assets that we just saw in the working capital and the current liabilities that we just saw in the working capital. And we make it a ratio rather than a number. And in this case, we're going to get 2.02. Um, this number shows how liquid the company is. Um, can the company pay the liabilities due in the next year with the assets that are available in the next year? Generally, we like to see this to be 2 to 1 or greater. So again, this shows that I'm right, right where I need to be as far as that ratio goes. However, sometimes inventory does not move quite as fast. It can take a while to liquidate that, depending on the type of um, inventory that you have. So another ratio that's looked at frequently is the quick ratio. And what this does is it takes those same numbers, but it subtracts inventory out of those current assets. And what this is is a little more conservative. It's saying, if I didn't turn my inventory over in the next year, do I still have good cash flow? So. Um, Generally, we like to see this ratio at 1.5 or greater. So just right off, I can see here for Chandra's jumpsuits that although my current ratio was really good, my quick ratio is a little concerning because it's way off from what it should be. So we'll look at that a little bit more as we get into this. Another important number is accounts receivable turnover. How fast are you collecting your receivables? So what we do is take the annual sales and divide it by your average accounts receivable, and you get this number, 9.8. But I find it's easier for me to work with if I know how many days it takes me to collect my receivables. So if you take 365 and you divide it by that 9.8, you get 37. And that says it takes me 37 days to collect my accounts receivable on the average. Um, of course, we all have those clients that take a little longer, but for the most part, I collect my receivables in 37 days. Now, this number is really subjective. This number is really great if I have credit terms of 30 days, um, because that means for generally I'm getting paid in 30 days or maybe just a little bit over that. Um, if my credit terms are 10 or 15 days, this really isn't a very good number. Um, so that's something you would need to look at in relation to what your credit policies are. Inventory is the turnover is the same idea, and it's how fast you're moving your inventory. So the calculation is similar. We're going to take our, our annual cost of goods sold and divide by our average inventory. And again, we get a number of 2.63, which it's easier for me to think about if I make it into days of, in inventory. So when we do that, we get 139. So what that means is when I bring inventory into my warehouse, it takes me 139 days to sell it or to use it. And so um, 
you know, depending on what you're selling, that might not be too bad. You know, my Jandarius jumpsuit's in a lot of material, so it's probably okay. But if you were in something that uh, had spoilage like food, I don't think I'd want it sticking around in the warehouse for 139 days. So just something to think about. So profitability ratios, these are going to vary much more from industry to industry. And so when we talk about benchmarking, these will be much more meaningful, but we'll go through them here pretty quickly. And these are numbers we already looked at. So if you remember on the income statement, we looked at gross profit margin um, as a percentage of sales. And so there's that 20.89%. So that means for every uh, dollar of jumpsuit I sell, I am profiting 20 cents before my administrative costs. After all those other costs, it's the net profit margin, and there's that 12% that we touched on a little bit earlier. So here's another definition I want to touch on before we go on to the next set of ratios, and it's EBIT and EBITDA, because uh, these get thrown out a lot, and I'm not sure everybody understands what they are. So EBIT is just an acronym that means earnings before interest and taxes, and EBITDA is earnings before interest and taxes, depreciation, amortization. So what this does is it backs out factors that may not be applicable to every business, because interest, uh, you know, different businesses have financed it differently. Different businesses may be in different tax brackets. And then depreciation and amortization, those are non-cash, and so those get added back a lot. So here's my EBIT and EBITDA calculation for Jandrius jumpsuits. And uh, you can see here uh, what I've done, and these numbers come right off of my income statement, so it's very easy to do. And we'll use those here in just a moment. So here's the financial leverage ratios, and this is just um, telling you if you are okay at the amount of debt that you have in relation to other items in your business. So again, we'll look at examples. So Jandrius Jumpsuits at the end of 2014 has total debt of $1.6 million and total equity of just over a million. So this one's a little bit harder to say there's a real benchmark for a number you want here because some businesses in growth mode will have a higher number because uh, you're going to take on a little more debt. Or if you're younger, business is younger, you're going to have more debt than maybe a company that's been established for a while. So the higher this number is, the more risky the company is because they are much more leveraged. Um, it, so too high can be risky, but too low may mean that you're not um, taking advantage of some loan opportunities in order to grow your business. So return on equity. Um, this is kind of what your return is, just as if you owned a, a stock on the stock market. So in this case, I've taken my earnings of 918000 and divided by the equity that I have in the business, and I get 0.89, and that's 89%. Now, in this case, that's like a really great return for one year, uh, but as my uh, equity section grows from income, then that percentage will be lower um, because I've got a larger denominator. So interest coverage, um, this shows the ability to pay your interest with your current operating income. So the lower a company's interest coverage ratio is, the more extent expenses are burned to the company. So in this case, here's that EBITDA that we were talking about. This is the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, divided by interest expense. So what this means is I've got about 10 times the earnings I need to pay my interest. Obviously, if that number is smaller, that means you've got more and more of your income is being used to pay the interest, which means it's riskier, and you have a bigger chance to default on the loan. Debt service coverage is a similar calculation. However, instead of just interest, it adds principal into that. 
So in this case, it's saying that I have about seven times the earnings that I need to cover my interest, principal and interest payments over the next year. Again, if that number is uh, too low, that means I don't have enough income to cover those payments. So productivity ratios, this is just a calculation that shows how profitable the company is based on some denominator. And the denominator really should be whatever it is that drives your business. So like hotels could use revenue per room, or a charter bus company may want to use revenue per mile driven. A not-for-profit may be uh, revenue or donations per child served. So this really is um, very dependent on the business that you have. So what I've done here is um, I've done some productivity ratios uh, in, a, in a couple different ways. I've got sales per employee, per machine, and per square foot. And what I've done is I split it up between two divisions, the Wichita Division and the Oklahoma City Division. So you can see that my sales for Wichita are consistent between the three, and it's just over three million. And I've divided the first one by full-time equivalent employees. So this tells me how much sales are per employee. Okay, great. And you can see Wichita's knocking out of the park compared to Oklahoma City because Oklahoma City um, is not doing as much per employee. Also, sales per machine. So again, Wichita is really doing well because their sales per machine is much higher than Oklahoma City. But if we look at sales per square foot, Wichita is not doing as well. I mean, they're doing about half of what Oklahoma City is. And so, you know, what's causing that and why would I have such different ratios depending on what it is? So here's why. The Wichita plant, they make jumpsuits for like prisons and auto mechanics and production plant workers. And these are very standardized and generally mass produced on a machine. And there's not a lot of variation except for maybe the color or maybe the, the name tag that goes on the front of the shirt. Um, and it just doesn't take as many employees, and, uh, but there's a lot more machines. On the other hand, in Oklahoma City, they make jumpsuits for Elvis impersonators and country western singers. And so these jumpsuits start on a machine, but you have to hand bead all of those sequins and all of the rhinestones. And so that explains why my sales per person and per machine are higher in Wichita, because they don't have as many. But Oklahoma City, they don't need nearly as much room for, as Wichita because they have smaller desks and smaller machines. And so the people doing the hand beading just don't need as much space. And so this is just an example to show you to Think about why these might be and don't just, you know, shut down your Oklahoma City plant because it's not doing as well. Because in this case, the Oklahoma City plant actually does really well because they pay really well for the rhinestones uh, on, the, on those jumpsuits. So anyway, um, so I want to now talk about um, benchmarking for just a bit. Um, what this does is it takes your financial information and it compares it to others within your industry. Um, it helps if the comparison is done in relation to the size of assets or sales, but not necessarily, although I think it's just a little more relevant. And it just shows how a company is doing in relation to its peers. Um, and this usually what we do is we do this by SIC code or so you know you're in the same industry type. So what I've done here is I've got a benchmarking example. And so what I've got is my financial statement are on the left. So where it says January's jumpsuits 2014, and I've got my balance sheet, my income statement listed. Then what I've done is I've gone out to uh, a trade journal, and I have looked at what the standard is for my industry for people of the same sales 
that's the middle column, or people of the same assets, and that's the right-hand column. And uh, this is compiled from information that goes to banks, and so there may be many, many companies in these uh, numbers, and so it's really a, a nice average, if you will. And so what I've done is just laid them side by side, and I just start looking. And what I notice is that um, my cash is way down, although that may just be a management preference on how much cash you want to keep. Um, fixed assets, they're a little bit low, uh, but I did just buy some new inventory or assets this year, and I'm planning, planning on buying some in the next year. So uh, that's really not too far off. Um, and then my trade payables, they are a little bit lower, but that may explain why my cash is down, because maybe I just like to keep my payables a little more current than other people in my industry. The things that concern me just a little bit when I look at this is if you look at that inventory number, it shows that almost 67% of my assets are tied up in my inventory. You can see that my uh, peers, it's only 46, 47%. So they aren't financing their inventory because they're not keeping as much on hand in relation to their total assets. That may also explain why my cash is down. Um, plus I have more chance for spoilage or, or different things there. Um, and that also explains why that ratio earlier, those quick ratios and current ratios uh, were so different where one was really good and the other was not. It's because I have too much of my a business tied up in my inventory. But then uh, we also, if we look down in the uh, the liability section, my long-term debt is also much higher than my industry peers. Where I've got 24% of my equity is financed, uh, my industry peers only have between 2 and 4%. And that can make a big difference because I'm having to pay interest on things that they are not. Um, that could be that my account's receivable, you know, I'm not collecting them fast enough. That's also going to explain my inventory being high. Um, now, again, it may be okay because I did just buy a new piece of equipment during the last year, but that's still quite a bit higher. And because my debt is higher, my equity is lower. And so it's, I just don't have as many resources in equity as my competitors do. And that can make a difference on what I can charge. Uh, my customers, I'm going to have to charge a little more because I'm paying more interest. So let's go down and look at the income statement a little bit. So what this does, again, is just lines things up. And I have just um, got them here. I've got the things in red and green. And, and what I'm seeing, first of all, is my cost of goods sold is at 79%. But if you look at the others in my same industry, um, it's 60, almost 69% to almost 72%. So, you know, our, my cost of goods sold is quite a bit higher than my industry. Um, and that would be a little concerning to me because that means I'm not as competitive as they are. I'm not making as much for every dollar sold, which means my gross profit is down. So I'm at 21% where they're at 28 and 31%. However, if we go down one more and we look at the selling general and administrative expenses, mine look like I'm doing fantastic related to uh, in relation to the others in my industry. And so what, this could be uh, a couple things. Maybe I really am doing great, um, keeping my administrative expenses down. But it also could be a difference in how I'm allocating my costs um, to my cost of goods sold. Like I said, there are those items that are not direct to uh, – that they're direct costs, but they're not um, the actual materials. And so I may allocate uh, 
insurance or utilities more heavily up into my cost of goods sold than my competitors do. And so because between the two then, if I look at it, um, you know, I've got 87% and they've got 97%, you know, something like that. So really overall I'm doing better. And we can see that when we look at income before taxes. I'm making 12 cents on the dollar and they're making one cent or minus almost three cents. Um, so in the end, I'm doing better, so I'm not going to worry too much about that my margin is higher or my cost of goods sold is higher because my income is looking good. And then this page, this takes those ratios that we just talked about earlier and compares them to the others uh, in my industry. And so just some things I'd like to point out is um, even though here we look at my current ratio, which we said is right where it should be and the others are not, we can see they're both below two, my quick ratio is lower than theirs, and that's due to that inventory being so high. So as I'm looking into the next year, I need to be trying to figure out how to bring that inventory down. Does that mean bringing it in closer to when I need it? Does that mean I need to clean out some that we're not using anymore? Uh, you know, do I still have some from the 70s that we're never going to use again? Well, maybe on those Elvis impersonator uh, jumpsuits, I don't know, but something I need to consider. Um, my uh, day sales and accounts receivable, this is Again, how long it takes us to collect our receivables. You can see that it takes me 10 days longer on the average to collect a receivable than, it, than my competitors do. This may not seem like a huge deal, but if, you, if that debt that we talked about earlier, if part of that is because you are financing your customers, think about you know, 10 days throughout the entire year, you know, 10 days all the time that you're financing those accounts receivable, that can get expensive. Um, so, you know, maybe I want to consider changing my terms or seeing if I can have um, uh, some of my uh, larger customers maybe pay quicker and maybe give them a discount. Um, so here I want to look at this uh, day's cost of goods sale and inventory. Um, this again kind of comes back to the same thing. It's taking me longer to move my inventory than my competitors do. Not so much on the asset side, but the people in the same sales range. Um, and Again, that could explain why my debt is higher. And, um, you know, if I brought my inventory value down, I'd probably move it a little bit faster. So it's all coming back to um, my debt being high and my inventory being high. And then finally, sales over working capital. It's a touch lower than my uh, others in my industry. It's not terrible. Um, but this is where you'd want to compare yourself to um, – others and see, you know, what you want to do and if you want to make any changes. And, and there's the others on here that you're welcome to look at, but that would be the idea is to sit down and say, where am I at in relation to others who are doing the same thing and how does it affect the cost or the sales price of what I'm doing? So finally, uh, I think here, dashboards is something else I wanted to touch on um, because what this does is it generally shows financial information in a graphic form and it's most of the time summarized to fit onto a page. And the idea is that things that are important to the person using the dashboard are grouped together and um, they're just easily readable and available. And so many accounting software packages have this as a feature and it can be customized to the person because uh, the um, things that are important to me as a business owner might be very different than like my accounts receivable manager or production manager. So this is the dashboard for me as the owner. These are the things that I want to see every morning when I turn on my computer and I get into the software. What do I want to know? Um, 
so in this case, you know, I, I'm interested in some sales. I'm interested in how my accounts receivable look. I want to know what my cash balances are, and I want to know what my sales are by product line. Um, these are things that as, as a business owner, I may want to make business decisions. Uh, so like in the case of sales by month, we can see that we peak here in August and September. Uh, maybe when I'm looking at my inventory, maybe I, I don't want to bring my inventory in until maybe June or July instead of hanging on to it all year. Um, you know, that, that might help uh, because that's when I'm making those sales. Um, so, you know, that, those are, these are just things uh, that I'm interested in looking at on a daily basis. So here's the dashboard for Doug. And Doug is the production manager uh, at one of our divisions. And you can see here uh, that he's got different things on here. He wants to know what his backlog is. Um, I'm going to say this is for the Oklahoma City division. Um, he's interested in rework. You know, how many times do we have to take the uh, product and, and rework it because something was messed up when it got to quality control? Uh, sales per salesman, my component cost of the jumpsuits, um, you know. So, you know, I'm seeing a big jump here in our backlog in July, August, and September. And that's because there's a big Elvis convention in Vegas in October. And so a lot of our sales are done in those two or three months prior to that. And so uh, I can see that jump in backlog. But I also see that our rework goes up really high in August and September. And it's probably because we're busy and we're trying to move things out the door. And we just make more mistakes and you know does that really make sense if you're trying to get things done so that may be something that Doug wants to look at uh, is maybe uh, you know better training or, or something so rework is not such a big deal um, or maybe hire seasonal workers um, also in the component cost of jumpsuits you know that's something that he's interested in and you can see here that rhinestones is like what maybe 48 percent of the cost of our jumpsuits um, you know those suckers are expensive um, so, you know, when he's looking at buying those and ordering them in, you know, can we buy them in bulk and maybe get them a little cheaper? Or can we um, maybe find out when uh, they're on sale uh, or get a discount of some kind or maybe buy them, um, you know, just at a cheaper price with another vendor or see if our current vendor could give us a, a break on those. Because you can see that that's going to have the biggest impact on our costs is if we can reduce the cost of the rhinestones. So um, I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen today. Um, I'm real passionate about this, and I really enjoy uh, talking about it. So I'll stick around for a little bit and uh, answer any questions.